Uh, when you commercialize, and I see a lot of companies uh, build a large commercial organization right out of the gate, hire 10 to 15 sales reps right when they're ready to launch and struggle because of that, right? It's a huge capital spend. It's a big investment. You put 12 to 15 sales reps out and you can start going through this learning curve and you realize you need to pivot. The real learning and the real evidence and the real proof of adoption comes if you're doing 20, 30, 40 cases in a single center uh, with two, three, four surgeons, hmm. right? And that's where you really learn. So I'd rather go deep into three, four or five accounts and go through that learning and, and show that proof of adoption and show that there's true traction and go through the learning curve of multiple cases with a single user. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Bryce Klontz. With over 20 years of experience working in the surgical device space from Canada to Singapore, Bryce brings a tactical advantage to his role as the CEO of New View Surgical. Under his leadership, New View has closed a successful Series B with a grand total of $14.5 million in investments and secured 510K clearance along the way. He previously worked as the VP of Commercial Strategy for Emerging Markets at Covidian, in addition to several other startup roles. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, be laser focused on product market fit. Building great teams and creating innovative technology are crucial, but ultimately meeting the needs of both the patient and practitioner must be the priority. Second, go deep when gathering data. You'll learn a lot more by forming long-term relationships with a select number of practitioners than by collecting data from far and wide. Third, investing in relationships and effective communication are essential to both fundraising and regulatory approval. It's crucial to understand the incentives of those sitting across the table so you can help them help you. Last, investors know that the path of profitability is rocky. Being transparent with them about the challenges you're facing builds credibility and furthers your goals. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I wanted to let you know that we just released the first volume of MedSider Mentors, a print-based book that summarizes the key learnings from my favorite MedSider interviews over the past six months. Look, I fully realize it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's a way for you to learn from the best thought leaders in our space in one central place. Here's a teaser of what you'll see in this first volume. Gar Hong Kong, founder of HealthQuest Capital, teaches you how to successfully pitch your startup. Patricia Ziliak, CEO of Ivinsons, discusses what you really need to know about clinical trials. Jared Bauer, CEO of Ionic Sciences, shares best practices for avoiding obstacles in your startup journey. That only scratches the surface, so if you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. If you're a premium MedSider member, you'll get free digital access and a print version sent straight to your door. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of LiveCore, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Bryce, welcome to Medsider Radio. Uh, looking forward to uh, our discussion. Thanks, Scott. Really pleasure to be here with you today and look forward to it. 
Yeah, um, this should be enjoyable and hope to learn a lot more about your your professional background yeah. as well as what uh, what your you and your team are doing at, at New View Surgical. But um, before we go too deep, can you give us you know maybe a you know two or three minute overview of of your career kind of leading up to your your CEO role at at New View? Yeah, I've been in med tech my entire career, you know, over 25 years now, kind of bookended that with startup experiences, uh, started in a cardiovascular startup out in the Boston area, uh, just out of uh, college, ultimately found my way to uh, Tyco Healthcare, which was Covidian, and, and spent 15 years there, uh, had some great roles there in the US, uh, Europe, uh, in Asia, uh, spent three years in Singapore heading up a surgical devices business before coming back in a, a commercial strategy and business development role. Uh, before I decided to go back into the startup world, uh, a year at an orthopedic startup and then uh, through a mentor of mine, uh, connected with a couple of founders and decided to um, uh, invigorate and, and raise money and get going with New View Surgical. So that was in 2016. So it's been a little over five, almost six years now. So quite a journey, but an exciting one. And um, looking forward to getting our first generation product on the market in just a few months time. So all surgical, all med device. And uh, it's been a great journey for those uh, for those years and, and looking forward to what's ahead. That, that That's awesome. You uh you kind of like your your experiences at Covidian and then and then and then jumping into the into the startup world kind of coincided with my with my career a little bit. I mean, yeah. kind of dating back to mid two thousand fifteen. I think I've, I've since since then. I that's when I, I left Medtronic at the at the time and have been uh, been with you know startups or early stage companies since then. Did you know that you 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 wanted to kind of move in that direction? I, I presume that was that was pretty strategic. From yeah, your perspective. Yeah. yeah, my experience at Covidian was fantastic. Still have a lot of friends there. Great company, Medtronic is as well. I didn't work directly for Medtronic, but a but a great company. But I had had the startup itch for a while. I had started my career in the startup space and always kind of wondered if I should go back and and, and do something. And also just this desire to dive in and build something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that classic uh, desire that some folks have, particularly, you know, mid to, to late career to, hey, like to step out and see what I could do, see what I could do on my own, see if I could build something, uh, uh, bring a product to market that excites me and, and just learn from that experience. So that's uh, the mindset was there for me. Uh, had some good opportunities uh, going into Medtronic, but decided to uh, take the risk and step out and and go the startup route, which, uh, as I look back, I think was the right move for me and uh, has been a great journey over the last, I guess, six, seven years since I made that call. Yeah, yeah. Almost, uh, you know, we're, we're closer closer and closer to a decade, you know, at, uh, at New Year. <laughs> I, I can't believe how, how much, uh, you know, time has flown by since I've been there. But yeah, it's been that long and, uh, you know, a lot, a lot accomplished since then, but some good memories uh, from working, uh, you know, at the large strategic company uh, for that for that long. Oh, de- definitely, yeah. And I'm I'm definitely looking looking forward to diving into um, kind of s- some of the key learnings and how you're approaching what I think what appears to be you know eventual co- uh, commercialization of the of the Vision Port system. Um, but but having said that, can you go back in time and tell us a little bit more about how how the idea for kind of your technology came to be at at, at Newview? Uh, and then maybe maybe uh, tell us a little bit more about the life cycle of the company, like where you're at in terms of regulatory commercialization, et cetera. Yeah, so Newview Surgical really stems from the idea of a couple of founders, Mel Prentovitz and Art McKinley, both for decades have been innovating in the surgical visualization uh, scope, uh, whether industrial or, or um, 3D endoscopy space, you know, as engineers and, and prior founders. And they had thought differently about how the construct of surgical visualization systems can be brought to market, 
think about new designs? Can we simplify, cost reduce, uh, give surgeons the ability to provide more angles of visualization, other safety measures? You know, a lot of just thinking about, hey, should we be thinking about the six-foot laparoscopic tower and, and the capital equipment devices and how the team and surgeon interact with those devices? Let's think differently and see if we can be productive with that. And they came up uh, with a, a core of an idea. Uh, that is uh, the vision port system, which places a HD camera on the distal end of an access port, kind of combining the elements of access and visualization into a device, leveraging state-of-the-art digital technology, but providing a, a new approach to visualization that has a lot of, um, of, of areas of value uh, for the surgeon, nurses, and, and hospital that, themselves. So we've come a long way and we're like I said, two months uh, from launching our first product onto the market. So it's an exciting uh, time. We received uh, 510K clearance about a year ago and, and raised some additional funding, a Series B round uh, to finish off the product, get designed for manufacturing, uh, solidified, transfer uh, that design to a contract manufacturer and go through all the requisite uh, testing and requirements to get a high quality um, you know, device onto the market. And we're in the last few months of that process. So regulatory under our belt and just uh, going through the final steps uh, to bring a product to put it into surgeons hands to uh, to test and appreciate that the you know understand if we've got the value we think we have in this exciting uh, new device yeah it, lo it looks like a cool device I'm on your website now newviewsurge.com is the website for yeah, this listening uh, and you've got a, you've got a cool little animation video um so is this is this um help me understand is this the first of its kind sort of device where you're combining you know, sort of a, a visual camera um, in it that's integrated with uh, with the 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 trocar. Is this? Are there other devices similar? Like, where do you kind of fit within the broader the broader landscape? Yeah, first of it, it's kind to, to okay. bring a device uh, to this stage. It's got the camera distal line of an access port. You know, there's companies out there that are leveraging uh, digital technology to kind of reinvent and rethink. Uh, laparoscopes, uh, colonoscopes, uh, bronchoscopes, a variety of companies working in that space. We kind of took the bold move to move the camera uh, to the access port and combine those two elements of laparoscopic surgery. And in doing so, like I suggested, gives surgeons more control, eliminates ports, changes the workflow of the uh, surgical team in a very positive way. Um, Single-use device, so eliminating a lot of the perioperative workflow and issues uh, and time that's required uh, to do that. And then ultimately looking to dramatically simplify and cost reduce the back end of the laparoscopic tower. So to take these six foot expensive laparoscopic towers and truly put laparoscopy, if you will, in a briefcase, uh, make it a lot more mobile, efficient, cost effective. And not only will that support current hospitals, but also bring laparoscopy to a lot of new environments and, and to patients who may not have access to it, advanced laparoscopy because of the immobility expense and perioperative uh, staff and workflow needs that are required of today's system. So a lot of exciting uh, value and advantages we believe this system will bring. And we believe our kind of unique concept and design uh, offers uh, some very unique advantages uh, uh, for the market and for, uh, for patients, surgeons and hospitals alike. Right, no doubt. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world to actually put the camera on the distal end of the uh, uh, the distal end of the trocar. And I'm, I'm most of my my wheelhouse is the cardiovascular space, so less less familiar with, uh, you know, with minimally invasive surgery or this this arena. But I did like personally, I've had my my gallbladder removed, and I think if I remember right, I had four four incisions. Right, maybe two of them were were at least one. Maybe not. Maybe maybe two of them were were for uh, for diagnostics. Right, and so it makes it makes a ton of sense. Right, so so I guess. 
practically speaking, for those for those that are more that are, that are more like me, that are less mm-hmm. familiar with with uh, with this world, could this be a scenario where you go from like you know four incisions uh, in a in a in a gallbladder removal or a you know for a patient that's that's getting their appendix removed to one one incision or is, is that kind of what we're what you're doing here? Yeah, I think for certain procedures, you're going to yeah. at least eliminate one incision. Uh, the incision and the port dedicated to the laparoscope um, yeah. will no longer be required, nor is the camera holder and the staff required to hold that that laparoscope. Got it. Uh, so all that kind of goes away. Uh, there are certain procedures where single port surgery, uh, now that we've combined the camera and the access port, uh, can be thought of and done in a different way. Uh, so single port or sill surgery has gone through a lot of... Uh, uh, ebbs and flows over a couple of years uh, in certain procedures. And I think our design uh, can lend to folks exploring SILs, uh, single port surgery in a new way. It's not our core strategy, but there's certainly some procedures, uh, tubal ligations, uh, appendectomies come to mind, uh, diagnostic procedures, trauma procedures, uh, where you could just put a single vision port through the umbilicus and you've got not only the camera, but the working channel associated with that single port. So there's a lot of different opportunities that we can explore uh, uh, with that as well. Cool. Um, that, that's great. Um, let's use that, that this as an opportunity to kind of uh, rewind the clock and talk talk uh, a little bit about your earlier experiences, you know, uh, since joining the company. So when you think about, you know, take us back to like that early 2006 timeframe, um, I'm sure the technology was was at a, at a much different uh, different stage. Um, can you help us understand, like how how you think about that? You know, the early ideation um, with with uh, with technology that you're developing at, at Newview. You know, the, the alpha and kind of the beta versions of products, and maybe frame that up for you know what what kind of the some of the, the key learnings that you've seen over the years, um, especially considering you you know you teach a course uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> at at, uh, at at Tufts that that I imagine speaks to this uh, this this issue. So. Maybe help us help us understand a little bit how you think about uh, kind of the the early early stage development um, and how yeah. to, how to avoid avoid certain mistakes. Yeah, whether it's at New View or, or certainly a key theme of the the course that I teach at Tufts, which is to biomedical engineers, larger graduate students, some undergraduate as well, is this focus on product market fit, right? That classic focus of hey, you might have a really interesting idea, a cool technology, an alpha prototype. Does it meet the expectations of the end user, the customer? And by the way, not only the clinical user, but the economic buyer, you know, as well. So an early focus on working uh, with surgeons, even collaborating at times uh, with economic buyers to to review the idea, review the concepts, uh, review the prototypes and learn and iterate the product from that, but also try to appreciate value uh, at the same time as well. And that may cause you uh, to make uh, changes to the feature set uh, that you are um, putting into the product. It may also cause you to reprioritize uh, some of those features, maybe even decide not to invest in certain things if they're not going to create the value that you uh, uh, supposed early on in that process. So when I joined NewView, now we had a, a couple patents and, and an early, early uh, alpha prototype and, and dug into, you know, and, and it's... It, it's a tough process to get the product right, to, to get it to the quality you need. You're sharing it with surgeons and, and it's, you know it's not quite there yet. You know, in fact, you're several years from having a market ready product and you got to deal with the feedback where you know it could be better, but you're getting feedback with, with a, an early prototype and trying to work with the right surgeons to get that feedback. 
You can't always deliver on everything they ask for. You don't have the time and money to do it. You're focused on your regulatory and in, in our instance, the 510k clearance at the same time and trying to hit that milestone with the limited cash you have. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things pulling on you as you're trying to make product decisions. And, and I think just continuing to talk internally about those priorities, focusing on the vision, uh, keeping an eye on your cash and, and understanding uh, what tough decisions need to be made with the cash you have to reach a milestone uh, so you can raise more cash uh, once that occurs. Keep trying to balance all of those things to bring the best possible product you can bring to market and a product that's going to meet the needs of the customer uh, and provide the value uh, that not only in our instance, the surgeons and the patients need, but the economic buyers as well, and keeping all of those all those balls and the arrows of things that balance uh, to invest appropriately along the way. So a right. lot of lessons right. baked into that, but that's how I see the process and and where the focus needs to be. Yeah, there's a couple of things that stand out, like hearing you describe kind of your thought process during those 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 early stages. And I want I want to talk to you a little bit more about product market fit, which I think is is crucial. Uh, clearly, um, I, I think you probably agree with that. But before we get to that, one of the things that like just just hearing you describe your 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 framework is all it's it's balance, right? You're, you've got so many balls uh, being juggled, but it's balanced within within the uh, the constraints of the next inflection point of, of of the company, right? And I'm assuming you you would probably you would probably think the same way. But when you're getting feedback from physicians, right, and you know it's a good feature, right, for a device that you that you could incorporate. But it's a, there's oftentimes trade-offs, right? And that it may take you outside of a certain regulatory path that you don't want to go down, or it's going to add considerable, you know, cost to the system, et cetera. So, you know, your your point about like being able to balance all of those trade-offs within all of those kind of just different functional areas is is crucial, you know, to being efficient at at those early early stages. Yeah, and and you're constantly making trade-offs, and you're trying to be capital efficient, efficient with your time. Particularly, you know, and you share this same experience, you know, coming from a large strategic where the time, the team, the funding you had to execute on a new product was vastly different. (laughs) And then this is a startup, right? So you you constantly have this mindset, you know what's possible, you know, maybe what you should be doing. Um, But there are trade-offs and there are decisions to be made because of time and money. Uh, Speculately, you know, you've raised a couple million dollars uh, in a seed or series A and time is ticking towards that first milestone because you have to hit a value you should hit and your aim is to hit a value creation milestone mm-hmm. uh, so you can raise that next round of funding and try to do so without a down round or putting the team or your your investors that trusted you at the beginning uh, without putting them in a tough spot or, or the team in a tough spot. So you're chasing a milestone and tough decisions need to be made um, in order to get there. Now, it's about you know, like we're going to talk about product market fit. It's about quality. It's about chasing that regulatory approval often, you know, at this stage. Uh, but ultimately, you know, staying focused on those things and just trying to keep to the goal is what matters and hit that milestone and then move on if you have to right. uh, to the next things. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah. of product market fit, you, you mentioned team. And I think this is probably a, a good segue into, into the, ne- the next question I had for you is, I think it's either Mark Andreessen or Ben Horowitz is like well known for for saying like there's always three considerations you know when you invest in a company it's team product or market and I think I, I can't remember which one but he's like I'm always I'm always a, bi- a big believer that that market meaning product market fit always is the key determinator right you could have a stellar team you could have an awesome product but if there's no market for it there's no appetite for it you know those pillars sort of like they, they pale in comparison to you know get, getting you know seeing true product market fit. 
Is that been your experience kind of throughout your career that, that that's ultimately kind of the, the biggest lever, right, that you can pull is ensuring that your your device, your whether you're working on a device or a digital health play or whatever, that you actually have, you know, product market fit. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you're not, everyone involved certainly not going to see the kind of the, the amount of sec- success that you otherwise would have. Yeah, I mean, you, you can have some fun for a while building <laughs> a product with a great team. Um, but if you can't ultimately sell that product and, and drive revenue and, and profitable, you know, revenue at that point and, and scale the business off of it, uh, it's probably not a good idea to have started a company. You're going to raise a lot of money and, and, and spend a lot of money and ultimately, um, you know, close the company if you don't have product market fit. So and, and that's what, you know, I, the basis of the course, you know, I teach at Tufts, just back to that, right? And a lot of what I teach is based on a lot of my personal and practical experience doing this, you know, for a long time is you've got a lot of these students who are working in labs and they're they're working on some really amazing technology. And that technology is often important academically. It's often been heavily funded through grants, but it doesn't always make for a good business. Hmm. And working with students and having them go through that process is understanding how to go through that process. The collection of evidence, the talking to customers, they're, they're having real conversations with people about what whether this will make a good business, whether or not they'll ultimately purchase a product you make it profitably again. Uh, it is often tough to get your head around. You're working on this great technology. Oh, but no one will buy it or the market isn't large enough. So some people will buy it but 50 people will buy it and that's your market size. And that does not make for a, a sustainable, scalable business. You know, so I've talked to students who have amazing technology and there are 20 labs around the world that need that technology. Hmm. Now, maybe they want to work in that and that's great. And maybe those that knowledge and that technology should be transferred to those 20 other university-based sites to, to perpetuate that technology and advance that science. That's great. You probably shouldn't found a startup on that because ultimately the product market fit or the size of the market and the amount of revenue you can make and ultimately your ability to achieve an exit, either through a strategic or an IPO, probably isn't there. Mm-hmm. So finding that out early right, is key. Uh, finding that out before you've spent five, six, 10 years developing a technology, before you've spent tens of millions of dollars on that development and regulatory process, it's probably a good idea to uh, to figure that out and figure out if you have product market fit early on. And Steve Blank's book that's used in i uh, I like a book, Nail It to Scale It, uh, mm-hmm. that, I, that I share with this. You know, it's a lot of this that, that's been learned and it is taught in entrepreneurial uh, courses. Mm-hmm. And, and my experience just lends to believe in that wholeheartedly. And a lot of the work I do with students and advising uh, early um, or younger entrepreneurs uh, is to do the hard work up front to understand that product market fit before that time and money is spent to understand if you got something uh, you can build. Right, right. That's that's such good stuff. And you you can rattle this these things off, but it's you know it's through whatever 25, 20, 25 years of of, of experience, you know, at, at strategics and in startups that you've uh, kind of honed some of these things, which speaks to. Uh, Speaks to you know types of lessons that uh, can only be be learned by you know by 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 making mistakes and you know uh, gaining key, yeah. key insights along the way. One other thing I want I want to get to uh, um, um, there's several questions I want I want to get to, but um, just anecdotally, you know, hearing you describe kind of this this um, this process where 
you know, tens of millions of dollars are poured into a project only to get to the finish line. And it's just, there's no appetite for, for the technology, for the device, the system, whatever you're working on. It reminds me of a project that I worked on at, um, at Covidian where I, I mean, I, I was part of that same deal where they, it was, it was a, it was a stellar engineering team, lot, lots of experience on that team. They ended up actually with a product that probably, I mean, realistically probably could have commercialized it. You know, it, it was designed for manufacturing. We were, you know, literally all the way to the finish line. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, it was going to cannibalize, you know, a certain, a certain market in the, in the U S and it, and the project was just killed, you know, all, all, all together, which I mean, really speaks to that point of like, you could have the best team in the world and have a lot of fun along the way. But if there's no, if, if, if you don't really have that product market fit, um, if there's no appetite, there's no demand in the market for what you're working on, it's just, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So anyway. that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and timing could end up being off as well, right? When you right. get started with the project or the technology, hey, you could be on the right track. Times change, environments change, uh, leadership in companies, priorities change for a mm-hmm. variety of reasons, yeah. right? So we've we've all experienced that, you know, getting off to to what is a, a really exciting idea and just things change. And, and that's why, you know, I think a lot of startups uh, fail. Uh, right. Maybe even at the core have been a fantastic idea. It's just the environment of the timing is just off, right? Right when you're ready uh, to commercialize and, and that can happen. Um, that's part of the game. That's part of the challenge and, and um, you know, respecting that and just trying to do your best to prove it out, um, you know, makes a lot of sense. But, but I'd also say that, you know, I think a lot of technologies and, and I suppose it's true in, in med device as well is, is customers aren't, always sure what they want or how to use a new device, right? That they've used something for years. And I think for NewView, part of this, you know, exists. They've used a, a set of tools, a construct for years. And until they have it in their hands and gain some experience, they're not sure what it is and how to use it and what value it can bring. But once they do, that, that it resonates with them and they want to move forward. So part of it is that belief. If you've got experience, if you've talked to enough customers, if you've got that if you got the team believing in the vision for for some good reasons, you know, persisting can sometimes make sense as well. So yeah. listening to customers has its place, but it's not the, the be all end all of decisions to move forward as either. I think if you've got a great vision you believe in, uh, bring it to fruition can change a market. And the more disruptive it is, the more that customers might have trouble seeing its value early on and it's worth persisting too. So I, I think that can exist just is equally. And if you believe in what you're doing, keep going. Persist. It may well change the market. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I've also uh, personally seen that throughout my career too, where um, where there's there's too much, there's, and everyone wants, needs to, understands they need to collect VOC, right? You need to understand kind of what, you know, step inside the shoes of your customers, but sometimes that's weighted too much, right? And the feedback that you get isn't in line with what, like your, what the technology you're working on. And I think you, you mentioned the domain expertise, right? Having that domain expertise to know, to, to be able to balance your point earlier, this is the feedback I'm hearing from customers, but this is something they don't, they're going to, they're going to grasp eventually, but they don't, maybe they don't quite, they can't put their their heads around it because, you know, it's a first of its kind device, you know, in your case with, with NewView as an example. So I'm really, really glad you mentioned that. On that note, you meant, uh, you, you, uh, you referenced this earlier, Bryce, your 510k clearance, I think, uh, was it about a year ago, we're recording this in, in yes. August of yep. 22, about a year ago. So congrats on that. When you think about the first, you know, the the kind of the innovative technology, right? First of its kind and working through some of the regulatory uh, constraints, right? It's good and bad, right? It's good in the sense that it's it, it's fun. 
Um, and if you get, you can get through it, there's a, there's a bit of a moat there, but, um, talk to us a little bit about what you've learned maybe over the years, if you had to like sum it up, uh, and, you know, leave other startup founders with like one or two pieces of advice, how should they be thinking about, you know, regulatory and, and, uh, and, you know, generally speaking, what are, what are some of the good practices that you picked up on over the years? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, throughout my career, I've, almost all of the regulatory interactions I've had have been around 510K devices. You know, dabbled in de novo a bit, but largely 510K, right? So there's a whole nother set of lessons and, and things that can be said about PMAs and, and how you handle, particularly on the farm, on the biotech side, which sometimes, you know, in the class I do, we discuss. But my experience is largely 510K. You know, so it's just a different game. It's about substantial equivalence and a lot of benchtop, you know, testing to get there and, and check in the boxes of uh, of those different uh, requirements uh, to uh, to get a 510k application in place. So building on that a little bit, you know, I found in my experience a couple things come to mind. Think early about building a relationship with the FDA, right? So the FDA offers you opportunities for pre-subs. I would take that. I would build a relationship. You know, this isn't the kind of relationship where you call on Friday and check in and see how they're doing. But the more you talk to the FDA and the more you're open and see them as a person on the other side of the line who's got a job to do and has got priorities and, and wants to, is going to be a regulator, but also wants to understand and help, uh, the earlier you can dive into that relationship, align on expectations, align on uh, your approach, uh, get that alignment, the better it is. And I'd also say that the more you can help the FDA in this instance and the regulars understand your technology, the better. You know, so I think when you go into a 510K submission, a lot of data. Uh, you're, you're just trying to get you know, kind of set, check the boxes on electrical safety and sterilization and, and biocompatibility. Uh, but ultimately, it really helps to help the FDA understand your device, the why you're doing the device, its impact on patients, and at times simplify uh, how you're describing to the FDA so they understand and they understand your product and understand where you're trying to go. I think that can help. And I think a lot of founders that I speak to uh, that are struggling with the FDA, and it's taking a lot of time, Fundamentally, it's come down to a misunderstanding with mm -hmm. the FDA, a misunderstanding about what the technology is meant to do and how that translates into the indication, a misunderstanding of what was going to be done uh, in the um, in the studies uh, or at, you know times animal studies and even even human trials. It's misunderstandings, which comes down to communication. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess ultimately. Uh, that's where I try to focus. And, and NewView was very fortunate. Uh, we applied for our 510K and had clearance within two months. I've never called the FDA to, to ask specifically why that occurred. Uh, so I have to you know, just suggest that the quality of our 510K application, uh, the communication early on, we had the FDA, the alignment around understanding, and perhaps the safety you know, profile of our device would have helped as well. Uh, timing helps uh, with, you know, these are, you know, the FDA are, are hardworking folks as well. You know, timing can matter. Their mood can matter. What, <laughs> what they're up against internally can matter. Um, so, so understanding that and working through that process can all uh, guide you along the way. So that's, you know, some of what I've experienced and what I think pe people can focus on um, with going through what is an ultimately complicated and, and uncertain process uh, with any regulator, uh, especially the FDA. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. 
you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.